1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. I hope you're doing okay. Maybe you're not listening to this on the commute like you were, uh, but glad that you're listening to us. Hopefully, you're listening to us because you're traveling. To see family, fingers crossed. Right, uh, we've got a cracking week coming up on the podcast this week and, and and next week. Loads of special Christmas presents for you next week. I will tell you more about that later in the week. Uh, coming up on today's episode, though, Tim Smith, Sir Tim Smith, the creator of the Eden Project. Really fascinating chat with him today, talking about how he created Eden Project twenty years ago this year, how he ended up hosting the Queen and the G7 leaders in July this year, and his concern. That our politicians aren't necessarily taking the issue of climate change seriously enough. So that's coming up in just a moment. First as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Monday, it's Libby Rachey. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. It, it goes to the heart of this question of uh, politics versus science and whether all of these doomsday scenarios that have been painted by Sage and Patrick Valance and others in the last 18 months which didn't come to pass, is that part of the reason why Boris Johnson is holding out on not going for tougher measures this time round? What do you think, Rachel? Uh,
2: no, I think he's holding out on not going for tougher me- measures because he he's terrified he wouldn't get it through the House of Commons and he's worried about his party management rather than the national interest. And also I think that actually the scientists are still not quite clear on on how quickly or whether any extra restrictions are needed i do think there's a really interesting thing because you were talking about whether or not scientists the scientists and the experts are now less trusted than the politicians i think actually the reverse is true that the politicians now you know it's endless cheese and wine parties this new photo that's come out of boris johnson having a after work Business meeting with wine and cheese in the Downing Street garden with his wife and baby. Um, you know, the, actually, the people that are, are relying more on the experts because they just they don't trust the politicians to stick by the rules themselves. I think the problem is that the experts and the scientists can't agree among themselves because it's a very, it's very complicated and, and human behaviour changes what happens. So you can make one projection, but then if people don't go out as much, wear more masks, you know, work from home, that changes the trajectory of the pandemic. Uh, So it's an ever-moving picture. Mm. But I think still the experts are are more trusted than the politicians.
1: Libby? Libby?
3: No, I don't really agree. I think garden cheese gate is a load of nonsense, frankly. Um, (laughs) But I think what's happened is uh, we have to go beyond the mere basics of doubtful public health predictions about one virus to consider serious political things, the ethics of personal freedom, the economy and more general health issues, including mental health, which is badly suffering in a lot of people and cancers and all the other medical needs. That is for politicians to decide and the health experts are not in general agreement and I think this is Absolutely, a political duty. I think that the rumor that Rishi Sunak is actually holding out against further extreme restrictions, screwing up everybody's lives and screwing, screwing up, you know, a great deal more. Um, I, I think I think that's valuable. I mean, I'm glad that somebody is standing up and doing that. And I I was not impressed, to be quite honest, by the um, arguments put forward just before the news uh, by your earlier guest. Uh, the, um, uh, I can't, can't say the word. Um, <laughs> epidemiologist. <laughs> um, statistician. Epidemiologist. Sorry, I've said that word so many times this year, I can't say it any longer. The, <laughs> the word sticks in my throat. But no, there, there is this is serious. This is about personal freedom, the limits of government's influence over individual lives, about the economy, about general health issues, and it's a political decision. It is not for doctors to make.
1: But I suppose that is the point, isn't it, um, Rachel? There's a, there's far more going on here than just the question of uh, stamping out coronavirus, and we've seen the, the huge impact that's had. And there, there is a genuine, and some people, and part of our previous guest was basically making, was was trying to dismiss this point. But but for lots of people, Christmas is a really important thing, and the impact on spending Christmas alone because of something enforced by the prime minister would be huge.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I agree with Libby that um, it's for politicians to decide, but it's also for the experts and the scientists to advise. Um, and they may have different advice and conflicting advice, but they, ca- they, they are at least basing on the facts. And my worry is when the politicians, uh, or, or particularly Boris Johnson, actually, it sometimes feels as if he's acting uh, in either his own interest or the sort of party, Tory party interest rather than the national interest. And I think at the moment he's worrying about what the backbenchers are going to say. He's got all the plotters on WhatsApp groups already saying he's gone too far. David Frost has quit saying that um, the COVID restrictions were stuck in his throat and were a step too far already. uh, And Mm -hmm. the direction of the government was wrong. Um, And I think that it is a political decision, but that political decision has to be taken in the national interest, not in one narrow party interest.
3: My my husband had had a useful suggestion this morning for the prime minister, if I may pass it on. He said, why doesn't he do a John Major, resign as party leader, but not as prime minister and say to the party, back me or sack me? That's what John Major did. And it worked for him for the moment, didn't it?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question. Who, so who is the John Redwood? In fact, I was going to say, who's the John Redwood? It might actually be John Redwood um, in, in that scenario. Who do you think would be the put up and shut up candidate, Libby? Steve Baker maybe? I don't know.
3: I don't know. But I, I think that I think the back meals, if you've got such that much trouble with your party, why not try back me or sack me? You know, then that's a small, tidy vote among uh, members in the House of Commons, which won't use up a great deal of uh, the rest of our time. Uh, <laughs> just get on with it and say, you know, either I'm leading this party or I'm not. And this is what I'm going to do.
2: There's such um, a risk I, for him, though, isn't it? I don't know. Do you think he'd win it? I think so many. Well, he's MPs quite a risky bloke. Yeah, that is true. The gambler. Um, but the MPs have really, they've never really liked him. And I, I just wonder whether the, if they were, did face that choice, the balance of risks in their mind would be, we're going to want to get rid of him before the election. So maybe we should rip rip off the plaster now. Uh, but I think what, there's a way, a different what a way to go.
3: Yeah, if they could have to it. Say he's doing it on principle to. and go off and earn a lot of money writing for the Telegraph. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, win-win.
1: It's really interesting. That just on the subject of Steve Baker, who's clearly positioning himself for for some sort of position. Are you both across the WhatsApp conversations that happened over the weekend?
2: I love this um, Nadine Dorries. Sort of <laughs> Steve Baker's the Jackie Weaver of the Parliamentary Party. You're so, so for, the,
1: for those that didn't see it, there's a WhatsApp group uh, with over a hundred Conservative MPs in it. It's called Clean Global Brexit. And uh Sam Coates uh, from Sky News was leaked exchanges from it at the weekend uh, with uh, various people saying that Lord Frost was leaving was a disaster, said Andrew Bridgen. F- Lord Frost is a hero, said Marcus Fish. In pops Nadine Dorris, the Culture Secretary, the hero is the Prime Minister who delivered Brexit. Followed by Steve Baker remove Nadine Doris. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> enough I'm- is enough, he said. <laughs>
3: Can can we just remove Nadine Doris anyway? Because with all the theatres absolutely collapsing and at the risk of closing, she has spent days tweeting about a Walter Scott manuscript saved for the nation and a hedgehog sanctuary that she visited, and nothing about the theatre crisis. So she's not I'd, a very good minister. There you go. I'd Out. seen,
1: i seen you, I'd seen you getting quite cross about that over the weekend, uh, Libby. <laughs>
3: Well, you know, we're all stuck indoors. <laughs> <Nothing
1: to do. laughs> all stuck in good arguing <laughs> with people about, about COVID. <laughs> um, it's an It's a good point, though. The thing about theatres that this should be absolutely boom time. You know, it's Christmas treats. It's Panto. It's the West End. It's the you, you know um, families heading out and and there's a real nervousness. Well, partly nervousness. People are worried about going out, but also the whole productions. I saw somebody. Somebody tweeted a list of all of the productions which have already had to close uh, it, be, because their the productions have been struck down. And it's, it's really bad, isn't it, for for theatres that were just that getting back on their feet.
3: And th- it is fed, the industry is fed by a great number of freelancers who do not get any form of support At all through the government, you know, send money to the Theatre Artists Fund, you know, just do it. Uh, it, It's really depressing. And it is depressing if your only culture minister, the only one we have, is tweeting about hedgehog sanctuaries. (laughs) Um, I do like hedgehogs.
1: I'll be I mean, hedgehogs are fine. Hedgehogs are fine. <laughs> um, uh, Rachel, your your views on hedgehogs or Nadine What One's particularly spiky and not very good in government, and the other one's <laughs> the culture secretary. Exactly. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> very good. I totally agree
2: with Libby. You know, she should be fighting every you know day to save the theatres and also make sure that the Chancellor. Give support to the theatres and to the cultural industries um, if they're not able to open. We've got tickets booked for The Book of Dust this week, and I'm just desperate for it to go. So far, it hasn't been cancelled, but it's you know 23rd of December. Will we get there? I don't know. It's so sad because everyone, you know, people are really looking forward to the special Christmas show outing, um, and that's such good time for the theatres. Uh, it's just tragic that it's
1: just come at this moment. Oh, Nigel's just been in touch, uh, Libby, to point out that the... Uh, yeah, Dr. Nigel Fletcher has pointed out that the Conservative leadership rules change in 1997, uh, so you can't have a John Wedwood uh, oh. uh, situation, which is a shame. So there will be no John Wed. Poor John Wedwood. He can't even be John Wedwood. Um, <laughs> just finally, Libby, your column today... Um, Uh, Actually, I feel bad about this because just as I was introducing you a moment ago, the doorbell rang and we had a parcel delivered. So we are part of the problem.
3: Hmm. We're all part of the problem. It's about Aesop, the ant and the grasshopper, you know, the ant who uh, stored up stuff and the grasshopper just assumed he could always get something, you know, something would happen just in time. Um, And we've all been grasshoppers for years and I was just trying to draw a line all the way. It's it's about, it's a family resemblance really, sort of a mental line from the online ordering becoming a norm you know, because basically your egg beater breaks and so rather than walk down the road to the Ironmonger you click and it comes from Amazon the next morning uh, to the just in time delivery that industry and business have done and the line goes all the way to the NHS which is in constant danger as we know and threatening everybody's life and everyone's sanity partly because we have only a quarter of the acute beds and staff that other European countries have. We've had years of cheese pairing and administrative inefficiency. We've had a situation where we thought we could kind of click on an international Amazon and get in all the doctors and nurses from poorer countries that we need rather than properly training our own. So the just in time society is something that I'm ranting about this morning. I'm sorry to be a bit ranty. Uh, I wish we could talk more about hedgehogs <laughs> and ruling the world. But I'm just just—I'm at the end of my tether like everyone else in this country.
1: Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there, and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the forward slash box. Don't forget, if you want us to say hello to you on our Christmas Day special, me and Marianna Foster bringing you our selection box on christmas day you'll be able to hear it on the radio at 10 o'clock on christmas day or here on the podcast but you just need to get in touch with us let us know where you are going to be on christmas day who you're going to be with or maybe there's someone you can't be with but you'd like to say hello to them email me matt.chorley at times.radio and mariella and i will say hello to you on christmas day for now though up next it's my chat with tim smith
2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Do you have trouble getting things to grow in your garden? Is it the wrong sort of soil or maybe it's the climate? Well, what about taking a sterile old clay pit, which is 60 metres deep with no soil and 15 metres below the water table? How can you make that garden grow? Well, 20 years ago this year, Tim Smith did just that. Threw open the doors of the iconic biomes at the Eden Project in Cornwall recreating sights and smells you'd normally have to travel to a rainforest to experience. The New York Times called it the eighth wonder of the world. It was all in the name of raising awareness of the need to save the planet. Well, two decades on, Tim has spent this year still banging the green drum. He hosted the Queen and world leaders during the G7, urged stronger action at Comp 26, and he's been championing, championing hot rocks as a way to power the country and i'm delighted that today sir tim smith joins me now morning tim good morning to you lovely to have you with us so there's a lot there's a lot i want to sort of cover with you but let's go right back to the beginning first of all because i've been like probably lots of listeners because millions of people do come uh, uh every year um i've been to the eden project i don't really it's sort of so weird it's hard to imagine it not being there and yet it doesn't really fit so take us right back to the beginning how did you end up creating this thing? Because you weren't a gardener at all, were you? You were a music producer and, and quite quite a successful one.
4: Well, yeah, I had been in the music industry, but I kind of fell out of love with it as a profession. And I moved to Cornwall. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And uh, through a... a, a, a a range of strange things, one of which involved being given a big black pig, which meant that I had to find it a mate. They had babies. I then decided I wanted to have a rare breed park. That then meant me I had to look for a place to have a rare breed park. And then um, I found that I couldn't have the land that I wanted, but I was right next to a derelict estate that had been uh, uh, unlived in for uh, 70 years called Heligan. Um, and I just fell hopelessly in love with the whole idea of an adventure of Uh, putting it uh, back to good heart Um, because I realized that the thing the thing that I love more than anything in the world is uh, the kissing of frogs you know you kiss a frog and it turns into a prince or princess and so I I did that with a whole group of marvellous people at Heligan, and that then opened to the public which was a tremendous lesson in the power of the media both bad and good that we won documentary of the year, but Stefan Buchatsky, who made the documentary forgot to mention at the end of it, that we weren't open to the public yet, which meant that the day after we had, <laughs> we had, we had, we had we, in our first year without intending to have opened, we had over 40,000 visitors. Um, but it was great because I knew nothing about plants, but I, was, and I was, I fell in love with it because it felt like the sight of people who, uh, you know, generation after generation had lived in this space. And I fell in love with that idea of the stage for human activity, but I was surrounded by marvelous plants people. And you'd be an idiot not to listen. (laughs) And because I think the secret of all this, Matt, was because I'm actually so dull about plants. I asked the questions that no one thought you should ask because it just betrayed your idiocy too much. Like why does a leaf or something like that? And, um, I then realised that most of the British public didn't know that either, because kind of snobbery <laughs> about, about about plants. You know, because up until Heligan, I'm exaggerating to make a point. The world of gardening, although it was huge, was kind of, in brand terms, a bit a bit kind of tweed skirt and things like that. And it was all Latin names,
1: and and it was a bit ex- exclusive in the sense that if you were a beginner, it, it could be quite difficult beyond putting some pansies in. A bit difficult, to sort of you know, get entry to. But then how do you go from, at least the the lost gardens of Heligan were gardens to begin with. So you were were bringing back something that was there previously. How do you go from that to, I'm going to take this massive hole in the ground over here and recreate the rainforest in it?
4: Well, I promise you, if your life depended on it and you and I went on a tour, let's say we randomly took 30 schools right across Britain, evenly spread, and we went to classes of between eight-year-old and 12-year-old, Every damn class would have been full of kids uh, that would imagine something like the Eden Project or building an Eiffel Tower, a mad Ludwig Castle. That's what young people do, isn't it? Actually, the miraculous thing about Eden, um, uh, when you you cut the dust off, was actually that we believed at a time of quite uh, conservative attitudes to things, that we could persuade people professionally trained to use the word no to say yes. and i think actually at the heart of it the millennium commission let's make a serious point the millennium commission when it was set up by the lottery um was asked to invest in things that common sense I- I- in the sense of the, we can make a really serious business case of this wouldn't necessarily support and i think when you look around the country and you see uh like the four wheel the uh the university of the highlands and islands which is fantastic um and us and and various other things you think actually you know what the failure rate of that is remarkably low considering they were actually taking risks and Eden um if I was to say to you the reason Eden got built was once you've decided you want to have a marvelous stage yeah and you're brought up I mean you're probably a good generation younger than me but I was brought up on stories of like Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines, she all that sort of stuff, and Sherlock Holmes and the other Arthur Conan Doyle books. In my head, I was dreaming of the lost worlds. Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the big tabletop mountains in the middle of the Venezuelan rainforest, which had got craters in them. There, there was a lost civilization. And it's really not a giant leap to imagine yeah. the China Clay District. You've been there. And yeah. Some, you know what? Those look like craters of volcanoes. Why don't we pour a secret civilization into it? you mentioned
1: the uh the millennium uh commission because um your attempts to try and get some money out of them, the times played a, a small a small part in that didn't they the, the times had a, had a little white lie yeah you are
4: <laughs> yes yes you 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 did you did um we we originally didn't get funding uh, and we really didn't want to admit yet that we hadn't got funding so we just thanked we just thanked the commission for Um, their attitude we never said they'd given us money but the times did a superb editorial in which it commended the commission for their bravery in supporting the project after which claps of stout party and we did get funded and we're immensely grateful and i think you know leaving the the little white lie to one side i think um the investment in the eden project was a, a marvelous statement of the things that britain is actually darn good at i mean we are we're not just good at gardening we're seriously good at gardening and I think what's happening to us culturally with the the COVID is that we're all getting, we're getting pretty hooked on, not only growing things, but also starting to to rediscover our respect for the natural world in a way that actually gives us a pause for thought. And you mentioned going up to COP. I think my overriding sense of COP was of the powerless of politicians, um, but how behind the scenes there's a real change. I mean, there is a fundamental change. We met a lot of people who are part of, um, uh, uh, Prince Charles's uh terracotta Mob, you know, business, business, and the environment, business, and and social justice, and I was really struck, as I had been during the G7. Look, hey, let me not exaggerate. We're little, little, little fish in a rather large pond, watching in. But I was really struck by it. It didn't feel like play acting any anymore. It didn't feel like middle-aged men turning up because they wanted to be able to tell their golf club members that they'd been here and they'd met the Queen or they'd done this. It felt like really serious people suddenly realizing that our future depends on looking at business in a different way, uh, in terms of stakeholders as well as shareholders. And I got a feeling that it was a bit of a moment. Um, And I think you you might agree when you look at uh, the newspaper coverage these days, I think the old tropes of being left-wing or right-wing Um, uh, 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 are disappearing around us I think the generations coming through are impatient with wanting to belong to simple tribes and actually ask questions which (laughs) you and I possibly do over a glass of wine which is (laughs) what you know what about moral compass in the middle of this forget left wing right wing what about just leaving the country better than it was when we joined it isn't that uh, the highest form of accolade and I'm, I'm very excited by that when I see your generation coming through and the one below yours I think maybe we're not doomed at all. It's like people are waking up, you know, they're slapping their faces <laughs> and saying, flipping
1: heck, you know. And how much of a shift has that been? If you think what the attitude was 20 years ago, 2001, just the turn of the millennium, uh, the Eden Project uh, throws its doors open. What? Why do you think that change has happened in sort of both
4: society, but in politics too? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I'd be a fibber if I said I really knew I I sensed in the middle 1990s there was something coming towards us and it was as if we all recognised it, it, but no one wanted to be the first to to jump. But you remember, I mean, look, uh, go back to, say, 2008 and the banking crisis. Why is it that now all the bankers claim they saw it coming, but no one knew who who, who should be the first to jump? So I think we've been aware of this for some time. I think also, um, uh, this may be an irony, but in a period where formal religion has perhaps lost its hold on an awful lot of people people are still aware that there is something they know not what which they believe in or they belong to or whatever it's a really complicated i'm phrasing this really badly but i have a feeling that, that humans are ready to reimagine their existence on earth and actually are waiting for storytelling of a quality which makes it feel joyous i i, I remember i don't know how you felt about this it, As a a Dutchman by birth, I was actually uh, emotionally uh, a a Remainer uh, in the Brexit debate. And I was asked by a journalist after we left, whatever, uh, how I felt. And I said, you know what? The greatest disappointment I have is that you weren't smart enough to ask possibly the only intelligent question you could have asked the British population. And that is, what would it have taken to turn you into a lever? And... I said I know exactly what it would be if my government had said we're going to make our nation food independent we're going to make our nation energy independent and based on renewables and we're going to invest a huge sum in education so that everybody can genuinely have a shot at the future they want to have I'd have I'd have voted to to leave if that someone had said that and had I believed that they would and I think I think the biggest desire I have and why Eden may be important is it gives a kind of horizon that is worth lifting up for. And I I, I wish we had a bit more of that belief rather than a kind of cheese pairing approach to. or <laughs> well,
1: just just cheese eating, which seems to be the main occupation of the government right now. Uh, you mentioned the G7 and obviously in, in July this year you hosted because the G7 was happening in Cornwall and you hosted well, quite a lot of uh, special visitors. Let's take a listen. Um, Mr. Are you pleased to be here, Mr.
4: President? I'm
2: very
1: pleased to be here. it suppose you're as, as if you're enjoying it. Yes, we're, we're definitely. You have been enjoying ourselves. Uh, and just
0: say how uh, pleased I am uh, to welcome uh, those who have just joined us. We need some pretty spectacular weather uh, with them. Prime Minister Modi.
1: President Ramaphosa, President Moon, in just a minute. And, 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 and the president uh, of South Africa, uh, as, 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 as I said earlier on. Oh, and you did. I, uh, I, did no, I did, I I, I
4: certainly did. Uh, the fight against this terrible pandemic provides, if ever one was needed, a crystal clear example of the scale and sheer speed at which the global community can tackle crises.
1: We are doing it for the pandemic. So, if you don't mind me saying so,
4: we must also do it for the planet.
1: That was uh, Prince Charles. You could tell you speaking at Eden because you can hear the birds twittering in the background. Um, uh, before that was also Boris Johnson, obviously the Queen and Joe Biden. What was that like, inviting them all uh, down to um, the Eden Project, uh, Tim Smith? And uh, which of the world leaders do you think enjoyed it the
4: most? Well, I, gosh, that's way above my pay station to answer the question properly i think it was a success in a social sense number one because her majesty was on sparkling form whether you're a royalist or not for to have one of your own able to look at the most powerful uh, men and women in the world and say look i've seen you all before uh, and i've gone through this about a dozen times if not more <laughs> um, i think created a kind of sense of balance so they all treated it almost as if they um were, were having a sort of summer picnic who enjoyed it the most I tell you, the most surprising person for me and for a lot of my colleagues was Angela Merkel. Oh, right. Well, No, she's extraordinary. When cameras cameras are lodged on her, she goes into a sort of facial rictus, you know, that traditional Yorkshire thing about her face like a bag of spanners. The moment, the moment the cameras are not pointing at her, she turns into your favourite big sister and was joking. She was joking and she was utterly charming. I mean, you probably heard the story about emily scott at the dinner you know the young uh the young chef at the dinner at, at eden where um president biden asked her to come out because she'd put a copy of her newly printed um uh, cookbook on, on on each of the world leaders um uh, plates to start with and he asked her whether she had an extra uh, a copy and as it was em- emily just had one extra copy in her handbag which she brought forward and blow me. He opens up the cover page and he says to Emily, I'd like to thank you for a most fabulous dinner, which 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 me and the wife have hugely enjoyed. And if ever you're passing through Washington, allow us to repay the compliment. And he signed it, Joe. And then in brackets, POTUS. He (laughs) He then passed it across the table to Angela Merkel, who not only signed it, but then passed it on. It went right around. All the world leaders signed it. And at the end of it, Angela Merkel did something really sweet. She said, come on, Joe, let's really round it off. And she got up and persuaded Joe Biden to stand up and prayed all the world leaders to stand up. They got the chef out from the back, put her at the front, and they did kind of like a Jersey boys, boys, for all of the world leaders looking at this signed book with Emily at the front. And you had to think, crikey, if the rest of the world could see that these are an ordinary, as in ordinary people like you and me, uh, with a sense of joy and a sense of emotion and sentiment, and yet we have such high expectations on them. Um, I must say, uh, I, I loved it, but it also made me think pretty long and hard, seeing so many people supposedly of power who are exactly the same size and height and seem to make the same amount of mistakes as we do, um, the tremendous amount we load on all of their shoulders and expectation of miracles and it made me think, going back to your question about 2021, what has changed? I think, I think, and many people may disagree with me, what is happening actively in our society is that we realise that in the, up until recently, we always thought there was a they. They will sort it. They will do this. They will do the other. And it's dawning on all of us that they are dead. There is no they. It's a bit like the Wizard of Oz. And we're gonna to have to really confront the issue that what are we gonna do? I mean, what are we gonna accept as a responsibility as citizens? And I think that could be a really healthy discourse for all of us to ask, as opposed to what are our expectations of the state for us? What are we gonna do for our communities? And I think uh, I think you're alluding to the pandemic. I think that's another thing which has made people think very profoundly about what they want to see where they live in terms of support for each other and what they'll contribute. I don't know, have you found the same?
1: Yeah, I think so. I also wonder whether this conversation about what Boris Johnson should be doing in the run up to Christmas, it feels to me, and this is entirely anecdotally, that people are, like you said, taking control of themselves now. They know that they want to see family at Christmas, so maybe they they are working from home, they're not going out, you know, and thinking, well, I don't need to be wait, wait, constantly wait to be told what to do. You know, we know by now what the right thing to do is, and it is, you know, it's down to individuals and our own individual actions. Um, Tim, as well as your sort of the Eden Project which is such an incredible uh, thing. You're finally in Cornwall. You're now finally, after years of people, trying to get you to do it all around the world. You are doing another one.
4: Um, yes. Well, we're doing, um, we're doing Eden Projects in other countries. As you know, um, we uh, created the centrepiece for uh, the Dubai Expo 2020, which was delayed by a year, which is fantastic. It's the most rock and roll, rock and roll science foundation you've ever seen um and it's fun and it makes people laugh and it asks people real questions and we're doing another one in china which is two-thirds up in the city of Qingdao uh oh, on wow. the coast um but to me i mean we're doing we're doing several things we also got some wild projects uh, a marvelous project in um costa rica i uh, may i tell you about that may i tell you about the costa rica project? yeah yeah, please do uh, well it, it's just it, it is so inspiring I was doing a speech in London and we were on the first floor, but I was carrying a whole lot of camera gear. And as we got into a lift to take it down, these hands came into the lift and pulled the doors open. And there was a guy who said, I've got to make a pitch. I've got to tell you something and I need your help. And I said, well, you better make it quick, bearing in mind we're on the first floor. And he (laughs) he said, my best friend has just inherited a rainforest in Costa Rica and he needs help. So I said, well, you've got my interest. And well, by Jove, they did. And what it was was that th- this f- friend was actually three brothers of whom one of them was his friend. But their father, a, a guy called Petar uh, was a Danish uh, uh, philanthropist. And he had bought 42 derelict farms in 1990 in the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. And boy, was this land derelict. I mean, you see the photographs. I mean, you couldn't even graze cattle there. It was... <laughs> and he put a fence around the lot and he said we're going to mend this land the birds will shit it back to life um <laughs> well, oh, ap- apologies to the lag. i'm sure just in case there are any children listening
1: um i'm sure they've heard they've heard similar but anyway go on go on, go on, go go on.
4: now 30 years older there is a huge rainforest there 10,000 acres wow and when we went to the local town of Paquera, uh, which is just on the borders of of this rainforest it is just so emotional when the mayor got up there's was eight thousand people at this party because the brothers were giving the rights to the water to the town and the mayor got up and he said do you know what it is like that for 20 25 years i've been looking at the mountains above the town and when it gets hot you see the heat shimmering and you know that you're in for a long drought where the cattle will die and people will fight and they will die now, today, when we look up the mountains, it is shimmering again, but it is mist of the rainforest creating clouds and it rains. And now there are four rivers running for 365 days a year coming out of the rainforest. And the people are just like they feel it's like there's been a second coming. Let's not be religious about it, it's, but it's a most amazing thing to see that nature is able to heal stuff if we stop pratting around. Uh, trying to think that we were cleverer than nature. It is really, really emotional. And everybody that goes there goes, wow, that's terrific.
1: That's a hell of an actual elevator pitch that somebody oh. made to you. We had a lift. And what, an, what an incredible story. What an incredible story. The last thing I want to ask, I'm just conscious a time, tip. the last thing I want to ask you about, obviously Christmas is coming up. We're all, we're all buying stuff we can't afford for people who don't want it. Um, do you think we need to change one of the things, again, that we need to do, is sort of change our obsession with owning stuff?
4: I think you're absolutely right. I think there's an awful lot of stuff that, A, could be shared and would create great wealth in everybody through having access to it. I also think there is something, uh, this isn't my idea, but it's an idea that I find lovely and try to carry out, is if as a family, as a family group of friends, you restrict yourself to a very small sum of money, let's call it £10 for the sake of the conversation, and you see what you can get hold of for a tenner, so that the symbolism of gifting something is more important than the value or whatever of the thing, whatever it is. But I'm going to interrupt myself because you asked me about hot rocks and I didn't say a word about hot rocks. Oh, yes.
1: Yes. Let's talk about hot rocks.
4: Yeah. Hot rocks. We are down to 5,389 metres underground and a temperature of 187 degrees centigrade. That's seriously hot. So by the end of next year, we will have enough heat to power all of Eden, plus probably 30,000 houses around us. And that heat is under our feet. You ask anybody in Britain what's at the centre of the world, and they will say, it's really hot. And if you really know what you're talking about, you'll say it's as hot as the surface of the sun. Therefore, you say, well, why are we burning lots of liquid and killing ourselves when, in fact, we could use that same technology to drill down, get heat, get us all the heat we need, and together with solar energy, uh, we will be able to become completely energy independent. And you know what? You don't have to be a hippie to say it. You could be a (laughs) right-wing radical and still believe it, and a left-wing thrower of whatever you want to throw, and still have this come true. We've got to believe that in the country of Don Brunel, what's happened to us? We seem to be so averse to risking a few rolls of the dice on our future and doing marvellous things. And I think we need to get back to the spirit of making things is respectable. Engineering is really cool. Horticulture. Do you know that design technology isn't even a bloody A-level anymore? What's wrong with us? What has happened to our country that we actually seem to think that all the things that make stuff are kind of trivial, whereas learning your kings and queens of England, that's important stuff?
1: Well, it's, it's fascinating. The, the hot box thing, so just to explain for people who don't know about hot rocks, you drill a hole down to the earth where it's hotter, you pump water down yeah. Uh, so cold water, by the time it gets down there, it's hot, it comes back up, and then you use the heat the steam. Uh, so instead of burning coal or even nuclear fusion to heat water to create steam to power uh, a turbine, you're just using the heat from the ground. So it, are, it, it's so are. simple.
4: It, it is so simple that people think you're lying that's the, that's the truth it. You know, i mean it, it is really there, obviously there are geological issues you need to get across if there are faults or whatever the big lie that has distracted us from becoming global leaders in this has been that it is so so difficult and it's there are only a few parts of Britain you can do this in you know where there's granite
1: yeah yeah, yeah.
4: it's not true it me it just means that if you 're in london you have to you have to go deeper but but if oil is now not being pumped out the ground because we've said we're banning it, you're going to have an awful lot of drills that will not cost you that much, that will be able to drill that deep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, some second-hand drills. Perfect. And that, that's recycling. That's a, a very okay, green but, way of doing it. So,
4: oh. for Christmas, for Christmas, give your next-door neighbour a second-hand drill. <laughs> Tim,
1: it's been lovely to speak to you. I could speak to you all day. We've had so many lovely messages about it. Uh, Pete uh, is texting saying, can we have uh, Tim Smith as Prime Minister, please? I've never heard so much good sense spoken. Do you fancy it, Tim?
4: I thought he liked me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tim, it's lovely to speak to you. I really look forward to be able to get back to Cornwall. And I, I, I assume you're, you're still open. How are, talk, how are numbers doing? Are people coming back?
4: If I was to say we've had our best year since 2001 it feels almost like you're tempting fate, but we are a wonderful mix of outdoor and indoor, but large arched roofs. Um, So people feel pretty, pretty safe with us. The same at the Lost Gardens of Heligan. So we've been very, very lucky. You know, the most difficult thing has been to find colleagues to get to work. We find it really difficult everywhere in Cornwall. There's just not enough staff. Um, But the good thing is, it means that those who are being, or or who had traditionally been paid less, are now being paid more quite rightly because there aren't enough of them that's
1: so all we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from